Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. It's great to be at an event organised by two of the organisations in higher education that I think really put evidence at the heart of the policy debate and actually, more importantly, in some ways, um, rebut poor, uh, ill-thought-through, um, unevidence-based policies and ideas. So it's fantastic to be here and it's great to be um, in Bristol. For those of you who don't know, um, the Higher Education Policy Institute is the country's only specialist independent think tank on higher education. We're funded um, mainly by universities subscribing and we have um, the vast majority of universities in the UK subscribe to us and um, get obviously get things in return like free places at all our conferences and prior site of all our research. Um, and we do all the things that think tanks do. We do public events, private events. We try to join up the policymaking world in Whitehall and Westminster with the sector. I spend a lot of my time on the road visiting universities and we produce a stream of publications. Uh, last year we did 15. I, I won't go through all of them, but for example, we did a polemic about the things universities might do to raise the importance of employability. We did um, uh, a collection of essays on the Clapton part-time student uh, numbers and what might be done to tackle that. Um, and some of those things are beginning to be implemented in policy now. We did a study on whether students were an important group of voters in the general election, given that the balance of political opinion among students is probably left of centre and we have a right of centre government. You can probably guess our conclusion. Um, we did a comparison of the German and UK HE systems. While we were tripling tuition fees, they were abolishing them, and we also looked at the difference in the research, the way research is funded and operates in the, in the two countries, um, and also actually the difference of approach towards internationalisation and international students. We did an analysis of world leaders educated in the UK that we call, now that's what I call soft power, because we found 55 serving world leaders and we only included monarchs, prime ministers and presidents who have been educated in the UK HE system as a way of trying to break out the sort of sterile biz versus home office debate. Biz says international students are good, home office for the economy and home office says they're bad for the uh, security of the country and we were trying to break out of that and say look at the soft power um, benefits. We did um, a study on what university applicants and students think about diverse classrooms studying alongside people from other countries and they're very positive by and large about that. We did a report on how student loans are treated in the national and departmental accounts which is very dry but very important because it predicted the shift from maintenance grants to loans, predicted some of the things going on in the sale of student loans and it explains precisely why the government is so keen on loans rather than grants even though both of them mean money goes out of the door. We did um, a a paper on student funding in Wales where we made ourselves rather unpopular in Wales because we argued for the maintenance of the current system where Welsh students can take their funding with them including over the border into other parts of the UK um, and uh, we did a collection of essays from institutional leaders explaining how they spend their tuition fees and how their strategies have changed since 9k fees came in and this year we've already done three reports we did a response to the green paper which was another collection of essays we took each of the main themes of the green paper teaching research student unions um, things like that and asked a specialist on one of those areas to to, uh, uh, to do a chapter we've um, published a lecture by Andrea Schleicher head of the OECD head of education of the OECD on how you actually measure learning gain uh, which was his big lecture for us last year and we published a study of how they measure um, success in healthcare and education systems to see if there's lessons for the teaching excellence framework. 
Um, and later, uh, and we've got three in the pipeline as well, one I was just talking to Les about, which some of you may be interested in, which is about the underachievement of boys in higher education, one on uh, employer-sponsored degrees coming out next Thursday, and then uh, in June, our, our biggest thing we do each year, which is a fifth, uh, survey of 15,000 undergraduate students that delves much more deeply than the National Student Survey. It even asks about student well-being. It asks about not only how many contact hours they have, but how many they actually go to. Um, and things like that, which will be out in, in June, which we do jointly with the Higher Education Academy, and is also not only final year students, so it's a bigger bigger um, picture than the National Student Survey. Um, and um, pretty much at every speech Joe Johnson makes, he quotes that survey, so this, uh, I think it has a bit of an impact on policy. Um, now, I've been asked to speak, as you if you've heard, about uh, research uh, in higher education policy making, and as well as basing uh, the rest of my remarks on my current role, because obviously the job of a think tank is to impact policy making. I will talk a bit about my previous role, because I spent 10 years working for David Willits, including three and a half as his special advisor, his only political advisor in the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, when he was Universities and Science Minister. So I was there when we were tripling tuition fees and freezing the research budget and some of the other producing the uh, degree, um, I also forget which one, what, the, uh, the, the white paper in 2011 on, uh, uh, on higher education. Um, and I really, there was so much I wanted to say that I'm afraid I've had to boil down what I want to say into sort of ten, ten lessons, um, and I'm happy to uh, be grilled on, on these later in the day. Um, but there was so much I wanted to say that I had to corral them some way into something. And I wanted to start with by talking a little bit about the environment in which policymakers um, operate, because I take a rather unpopular view that most politicians and most civil servants and the policymaking world in Westminster and Whitehall is actually quite evidence-based. So the, the civil servants I worked with, the politicians I worked with, are open to new evidence. Um, there may, of course, be the odd one that isn't, and indeed there may be quite a few who aren't on particular issues. I think, for example, of uh, you know the number of MPs that support homeopathy, to which is a pretty thin evidence base, to say the, say the least. Um, and they may also be too keen sometimes to think that the plural of anecdote is evidence, which of course it isn't, and I think myself that the teaching excellence framework has as much to do with middle class dinner party whinges about teaching in universities as it does uh, 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 academic research. But, um, um, but I think they largely are evidence based. But I also think that in a, in a democracy, of course, it is their role and their responsibility to think about all sorts of influences on them as well as academic research. Um, Certainly the, for the politicians, if not the civil servants, that includes what uh, the voters think, which may well not always accord with the latest research. There was an American politician who w once lost an election, and he said uh, afterwards, the people have spoken, the bastards. And I think sometimes maybe um, re the research community can feel uh, the same. Now, I, I just, I've got one, I haven't got any slides, but I do have one handout which sort of summarises what I'm going to say, um, which I'm just going to hand out now, if that's, uh, if that's okay. I'll just a few at the end of each row, um, because of all. Uh, <coughs> I should do enough, in the room I should do enough credit to go through. If anyone hasn't gone, please pass them back. Um, the people at the, this, the window end may, may, may not have one if I haven't given enough to each row. Um, but that sort of summarises, it, it's got two sides to it. And on one side is a very useful um, table I found from an academic article 
headed the 10 fundamental challenges to evidence-based policymaking. And they really elaborate on the first point I just made. Why is it that policymakers, politicians, civil servants do not always just do what the evidence says? And there's a very useful list of 10 points. They're not mine. They're taken from an academic article. The author's name's at the top. Um, uh, and they sort of are a much longer explanation of my first point. And on the back of the sheet is the sort of structure of the rest of my speech. Really. The second thing I wanted to say about the environment in which policymakers operate and why they're not just automatons sort of implementing whatever the latest research said is that, of course, evidence itself is very often contested. I mean, in the widening participation space, it'd be interesting to know if Les agrees with this, but my reading of the evidence on widening participation and the um, importance of the schooling of someone and how you take their prior achievement into account on the, on the threshold of higher education is that, is that some academics' evidence suggests that it's school type that matters, whether it's a comprehensive school, a grammar school, an independent school. And other academic evidence suggests it's actually how an individual school does relative to similar schools that matters most. Um, because, of course, not every comprehensive is Grange Hill and not every independent school is, is Eton. Um, to take another example, the boys' report that we've got coming out next month, um, we um, have a long look at whether or not more male teachers in the classroom, there's, there's an argument that if you have more male teachers in the classroom, more male role models, that will improve the educational performance of boys and they'll get a higher educational achievement. We've looked closely at the evidence and the evidence is very contradictory. There's lots of research that shows that, there's lots of research that shows the opposite. And, and we're completely open about that. And, but of course, if you're a policymaker, what are you meant to do? You can't, as a policymaker, run two, con unless we're doing a trial, you can't run two contradictory policies at the same time, or at least it's not all that easy to do so. Um, so I think the second point I wanted to uh, sort of emphasize is um, the, the, sort of con the, the way in which evidence is itself contested makes it hard for research to be easily assimilated sometimes into the policymaking world. Um, the third point I want to make is also about how you assimilate the fruits of research, which is actually to do with the presentation of the academic and research output. Because certainly at HEPI, uh, our goal, as I say, is to impact on policymakers. So what we always do is we always have at the back of our mind an ignorant but intelligent reader. So we try to make all our research easily accessible to someone, let's say a new universities minister, you know, who's not stupid, but may have no background in higher education. A new senior civil servant, a, a lay member of the governing body of a university who may have only just joined. And so we always try to have those readers in mind, because we think if we reach them, we will reach other readers uh, too. Um, I think it was Aristotle who said that an argument needs three elements. It needs, it, it's about the quality of the argument, it's about the credibility of the people making the argument, and it's about the appeal of the emotions. And I think it's important to remember all three elements if you want your research to have a, a, a big impact on, on policy. Because a good argument on its own is not always enough. Um, and personally, I think that goes for the title and the abstract of academic output too. Sometimes the title and the abstract don't actually tell you what it is you want to know and whether you should dive more deeply into the, uh, the research. Um, sometimes I'm asked why we don't publish as a think tank working on higher education policy, more papers by academics. And the truthful answer is a lot of the, of the publications I get by academics are just not accessible enough. The data is not produced in an, or, or explained in an intuitive way. The language can be quite inaccessible. 
And then it's not always clear how policymakers are meant to respond to the research either. I would love to publish more by serving academics, but we need, can only do it if it, we think it's going to impact on Whitehall and Westminster. And we've actually adopted recently a style guide for all our authors to really emphasize this point. And, and uh, just to give you one example, it's freely available on our website. One of the uh, recommendations we made, for example, is the avoidance of flabby language. We don't quite have a banned word list, but if we did, it would include silos, it would include paradigm, it would include holistic, uh, words which I think are just sort of, they, they almost conceal things rather than reveal, reveal things. Um, my view, and you may disagree with this, but my view is I've never understood why it's not possible to publish a PhD without having to completely rewrite it before it's in a form where publishers think the rest of the world will want to read it. My view is why there's something slightly wrong in academia if the way to get a PhD is to write something which is unpublishable until it's been rewritten. And I, and, and I've ne I did a blog on that, and so I know some academics disagree with me on that, but that is uh, uh, my view. The, the fourth um, point I want to get across is, is um, the importance of timing. Now, of course, you can't publish research before it's ready. I mean, the Institute for Fiscal Studies research on graduate earnings, which came out earlier this week, which is fascinating. I mean, that's taken as long as the First World War to produce. I, we, I was told, the First World War analogy holds up, because when I worked in government, I was told we would get the results of that research by Christmas 2012. Four years later, we've got some of the output of the research, not all of it. And... Um, I'm not arguing, and, and that acts as such an important piece of work that it's still influential, but I'm not arguing that research should be published before it's ready. But what I am saying is you have to hit the policy, policy zeitgeist sometimes. If you know there's a particular minister in post who's particularly interested in the areas in which you're working, you have to somehow make sure you hit them. And if your research is not ready to publish, go in and have a face-to-face -face meeting. I think civil servants politicians are much more open to face-to-face -face meetings than people realise. Go in and have a face-to-face -face meeting and explain the fruits of your research. I think sometimes people think politicians either work on the back of fag packets or they work sort of to the 15th decimal place. And neither is true. They work in the sort of grey area in the middle. They want to know that things are true, but they don't need it to the 15th decimal place. But it's not quite good enough to be the back of a fag packet because it won't sustain a Newsnight interview if that's all it is. And, and, and I think it's just important, that, as I say, if your research is hitting a really pertinent policy question, it might be in the current Green Paper or something, uh, to make sure you are informing po uh, policymakers of that, even if it's not quite ready to be published in a polished uh, journal. Um, the fifth point I wanted to make was your research, if it only appears in academic journals, will not be read in Whitehall or Westminster. I mean, it, it is, uh, it is the reason that is true is there is no institutional login in Westminster or Whitehall. There is no means for civil servants and politicians to get your output if it's only in academic journals. When I was in biz, I would occasionally ask to see an academic journal article, $25 a pop. The department would go into meltdown because nobody knew whose budget that was meant to come from and nobody, there was no mechanism to get it. There are no departmental libraries in any government department anymore. The political parties have no uh, uh, libraries anymore. The House of Commons and the House of Lords do still have libraries, uh, but they have a very eccentric mix of academic journals and they don't have general, so they don't talk about Af have an Athens login, for example. So uh, uh, you need to be getting it somehow to uh, academics, your, oh, sorry, to policymakers yourself um, if it's only appearing in, um, in academic journal articles. Um, the sixth point I wanted to make was um, 
I think sometimes, you know, we're a country that's always down on our policymakers, but actually, it's, I don't think it's the calibre of our policymakers that's the problem. I think it's the velocity at which they change roles. So take those uh, policymakers working on higher education. First of all, um, uh, higher education has bounced around Whitehall like a rubber ball in recent years. Secondly, higher education is in a department that is very big. So if you want to get promoted in the business department, you don't uh, stay in the same job forever. You move uh, ideally every six months or uh, worse every 12 months. And you don't just move from widening participation to further education to research funding. You move from higher education to saving the steel industry, to, to working on trade and investment. Um, in my three and a half years in the business department, my minister, David Willett, had five, sets of, five sets of private secretaries. Uh, and that was standard. All the ministers in the department had that. Um, so there isn't, so there's a sort of constant process of reinventing the wheel. And it also hinders, I think, innovative thinking because if you don't know an, end, an area really well then it's sort of you're more inclined to go with I think perhaps the status quo or the safer um, safer options. There was one advantage by the way I think of the rapid turnover of uh, um, civil servants and policymakers, and it's this if you have a complete blockage with somebody you just wait for them to be replaced and have another go and there were times uh, where I saw this happen I mean um, uh, I was told, for example, uh, given the sort of issues we're discussing today, I, we were very keen that the key information set should be freely available on mobiles and tablets. And I was told when we first came into government uh, and when the key information set first went live, this was far too costly, it would be far too difficult, it would be very difficult to do. I then found about a year later, Hefke were about to do it. Um, and I made sure my minister was sort of associated with, it, with this happening. But, um, and it had happened because, I don't know, I think some new people had come in and decided it was dead easy to do. We had a problem in government that the American government stopped funding any American students and institutions without their own degree awarding powers, which meant if you're a conservatoire, a specialist institution, uh, you couldn't take American-supported students any longer. Um, and we were told by the American minister and American officials, it's absolutely impossible to tackle this problem. Uh, then a new official kept, got into the key post in America, and overnight the problem disappeared. So don't you know, if, you, if you've got reached a dead end with some civil service <coughs> policymakers, never uh, give up, I, I think, is probably the, the uh, uh, key thing. Um, my uh, uh, eighth point, I think you've got the list of them in front of you, is constructive criticism is always better than destructive criticism. I remember when we were tripling uh, tuition fees in biz, I had a stream of people come through to see us uh, who would tell me why the world was going to hell in a handcart and this was going to be an absolute disaster. And I said to every one of them, I just said, look, just imagine you're sitting where we're sitting and you've got only two restrictions on your ability to implement policy. One is we live in a democracy, so we can't do absolutely anything. Secondly, there's a shortage of money. And we don't particularly, by the way, want to cut student places. Um, and the, the only response I ever got to that, because uh, I would say to them, what would you do? Given those restrictions, we live in a democracy and we don't have an endless pot of money, what would you do? The only response I ever got to that was a look of horror, because they, hadn't, uh, they didn't have an answer to that question. Whereas we would have been up for conversations about things we might do instead. But you have to realise the sort of restrictions under which we and, I guess, others, others were, uh, were operating under. And um, I think when it comes to the writing of academic papers, far too often the academic papers have brilliant analysis. And by the way, this is true of that Institute for Fiscal Studies paper that came out earlier this week. 
brilliant analysis, followed by a really weak set of policy conclusions at the end. In fact, in that IFS paper, most of the section headed policy conclusions are not policy conclusions at all. Um, and uh, you need to, I, in my view, give as much thought to that policy conclusion uh, remarks at the end of the paper as to some of the earlier analysis uh, uh, in the papers if you want to have, as I say, an impact on, on policy. So two more points and then I'll stop. Um, politicians, particularly in the modern age, like to have a narrative. They like to be known for something. Clearly with Joe Johnson it's about teaching excellence in universities. They like to have a narrative. And if there is a way, and it's not always possible, but if there is a way to fit your research and your output into the narrative without, of course, changing your conclusions, it has much more chance of success. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. When I was working for David Willits, we came up with something called the Eight Great Technology, which was our attempt to lobby the Treasury to spend more money on research. We said, look at these amazing new technologies. If you fund this, Britain can be the world leader in these areas. And um, um, we didn't invent that. Some people think it was a political invention. We didn't do that. We went out to the research community and we said, what are your priorities? And we got a list of 153 research areas. We could not go to the Treasury and say, our narrative is here's 153 disparate, random research areas you should spend money on. We had to corral them into a sort of sexy, sexier political narrative. We didn't go through the list of 153 and knock a whole load out. We just corralled them into groups. We didn't knock anything out. And it was very interesting because when we launched the eight great technologies, we had two responses from academics who were annoyed that their, they thought their discipline wasn't somehow included. And there was a smart response and a, and a, and a much, much less intelligent response. The less intelligent response was just to write us an outraged letter and say, why is my subdiscipline of research not in, in the great technologies? The smart response was to write us and say, I'm just writing to check that my little area is covered by one of the eight greats, which of course is a question begging the answer yes. And we were always able to, able to say yes, because as I say, our, our goal was to persuade the Treasury to give more money to research, not to say these eight great technologies should be funded and nothing else should be funded. And then the final point I wanted to make, and I say this really as a historian, my, my own, I'm not, I've never been an academic, but I have published some um, academic papers, and uh, I, I, they're all, they're all essentially historical ones. There is no history in Whitehall. I don't mean there's no knowledge of the Celt, or there's no knowledge of the Tudors. What I mean is there's no knowledge of what happened five, six, seven years ago. And when we were tripling tuition fees back in the 2010 to 2012 period, there were basically no officials who had worked on Tony Blair's tripling of tuition fees from 04 to 06. So we did have to reinvent the wheel. And why was it that Vince Cable and my boss David Willits went out and said tuition fees would be of £9,000 would be exceptional? Well, there were a number of reasons. One was we, we didn't, hadn't looked properly at the precedent of 2004 to 2006. Secondly, relevant to where we are now and, and, and Les being here, we thought offer was more powerful than offer actually is in law. And uh, Martin Harris, Les's predecessor, wrote a letter to the Times Hard to put us right. And, um, but we did, and if there'd been a cadre of civil servants who'd, been able, who'd worked on Blair's package and knew the 2004 Act inside out, those mistakes wouldn't have happened. I'll give you another example. We didn't even know the parliamentary procedure for tripling tuition fees. Nobody in the civil service knew that. I had to go back to the standing committee phases of the 2004 bill to find out what that procedure was. And it was a very strange procedure, because if you look at Hansard for December 2010, you'll find there were two votes on the floor of the House of Commons. Not one, because we had to do the lower threshold at which offer kicks in, and the upper threshold 
you know, the 6,000 cap and the 9,000 cap. And so, um, you know, that gives you, the lack of historical memory in uh, Whitehall, I think, gives you um, an opportunity. But it's also, um, it's also important to remember. And in fact, I got so frustrated with it that in my spare time as a special advisor, I wrote an academic article on the history of student loans in the UK uh, from the 1960s to the present day. And it was called From Grants for All to Loans for All, because there were some people even back in the 60s pushing the idea of student loans, particularly in the Treasury, I've got to say. And um, the first academic journal I sent it to um, refused even to put it out to peer review on, on what I think is rather wonderful, wonderfully patrician ground. They said, those of us who teach about higher education know this story back to front. This is very familiar terrain to us. And I felt like I was banging my head against the recall because I felt, well, it may be familiar to you, but why aren't you telling it to the policymakers and those of us sitting in Whitehall? And in fact, I did, get, I did in the end get it published by a different academic uh, journal. And it, it's, been, it's been more downloaded and read than all my other, five other academic papers put together. So there was clearly an appetite for that sort of, you know, even if to some people it seems basic, <coughs> the story of recent history from which we could learn. And as I say, the churn of civil servants and officials is so rapid that there, there, you know, there is not much memory beyond two or three uh, months sometimes. So, um, so uh, I think that's uh, 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 really the final point on what, which I wanted to end. Other than to say, if I had an 11th point, um, when we did A-Cray Technologies, we later made a nine, nine fine technologies. But um, if I had a final point, it's really don't give up because, you know, as I say, sometimes you can feel you're banging your head against a brick wall, but an official changes, a minister changes, a law changes, uh, the government suddenly needs a new story to tell, um, and actually suddenly all the doors are opened up for you again. So um, that's it in my eyes. Many thanks.